www.hppodcast.com. I have never heard an even approximately adequate explanation of the horror at Martin's Beach. Despite the large number of witnesses, no two accounts agree. And the testimony taken by local authorities contains the most amazing discrepancies. Perhaps this haziness is natural, in view of the unheard of character of the horror itself, the almost paralytic terror of all who saw it, and the efforts made by the fashionable Wavecrest Inn to hush it up after the publicity created by Professor Alton's article, Are Hypnotic Powers Confined to Recognize Humanity? Against all these obstacles, I am striving to present a coherent version. For I beheld the hideous occurrence, and believe it should be known in view of the appalling possibilities it suggests. Martin's Beach is once more popular as a watering place, but I shudder when I think of it. Indeed, I cannot look at the ocean at all now without shuddering. Shuddering with delight. Beach party! Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Martin's Beach. We're lighting up the tiki torches and breaking out the beach balls. Oh yeah, it's good. I'm be your fun. host, Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm your host, Chris Lackey, and we're here with the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. Woo! Yeah. So this is the horror of Martin's Beach we're talking about today. It's not really very much of a party. No, there's well, party goers don't have a lot of luck in Lovecraft's no, they uh, stories. They, they don't. They, they, things don't normally turn out very well. There's a, a second title for this story. Yes, the Invisible Monster. Was right? it was that its original published title, or is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. It must have appeared under that title in uh, some subsequent. It, well, it was published in twenty three in Weird Tales. In Weird Tales. Now yeah. there's something about this that's unique. Uh, among all of the Lovecraft stories Indeed, because it's written by his future wife, Sonia Green. That's right. And they count this among, I guess, his revisions. I think that she wrote the story originally, and then oh, right. he rewrote it. And he wrote, came in and rewrote yeah. it. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of impossible to speculate on what part belongs to whom. But those first three paragraphs of the reading are, are great. Our reader today is Heather Klinke. Yeah, Chad's wife. Yeah, you may know her from The Cats of Ulther. Yeah, she did the Cats <laughs> of Ulther episode. So She's back. She's- the great things about those paragraphs is that they're very short, and they each contain an interesting and, and dare I say, titillating piece of information. Yeah. Well, we know right from the beginning that something terrible happened, and that there were a lot of witnesses, yeah. but nobody can agree on what exactly happened. Yeah, and the, this is the interesting thing. This article by Professor Alton, Are Hypnotic Powers Confined to Recognized Humanity? Yeah, it, it seems to be ascribing hypnotic powers to non-humans, whatever that means. Yeah, you know? I and I'm sure it won't come up later in the story. I love that he said that the discrepancies in the accounts are amazing. <laughs> You know, like how, like how huge are these discrepancies? Like well, I saw Scott Bayo transform into a Corvette. No, 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 no. That wasn't Scott Bayo. No, no. It was no. A, it was a unicorn that transformed into a Pegasus. No, it was a Corvette that turned into the concept of justice. You know, like how amazing are these discrepancies? Uh, we also know that there is a snooty hotel up there. Oh yes, yeah, yes. it's a little fancy hotel. The Wave uh, Crest Inn. The Wave Crest Inn. Yeah, and yeah, they're they're trying there. to hush it up, which is 
you know, they're reacting badly to the publication of this article that you yes. mentioned because it could be bad for business, which right away, it's Jaws, man, you know? It, it, uh, well, I mean, this obviously predates Jaws. Yeah. Um, but I, I just imagine the owner of the Wave Crest Inn's like, we've got a whole group of, of dilettantes coming here, and I don't want any invisible monsters screwing it all up. Dilettantes bringing a lot of money to this town. <laughs> Those are summer dollars. <laughs> I don't oh. think that's the first time we'll be referencing. Uh, no, it Jaws. probably won't be. So one thing I thought was interesting about the story is it mentions dates. And the first date mentioned is May 17th, mm -hmm. which is uh, the crew of the fishing smack Alma under Captain James P. Orne basically had a 40-hour battle That's the best. with a sea monster. Yeah, Captain Orne killed this giant marine monster after a 40-hour battle. 40 hours? Yeah. That's almost two days. Yeah. Of fighting. I know. What were they doing for well, that? Well, they must have just been hanging on to it and the thing trying to pull them away and they're, trying, they're pulling on the thing. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it was bare-fisted, you know, boxing match going on. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it's big, but it's yeah. not that big. It's Well, it's it's big enough that it really gets all kinds of scientists pretty stirred well, up I in mean, Boston when they well, hear here, about it. Right, right here in the story. Here we go. The object was some 50 feet in length, of roughly cylindrical shape, and about 10 feet in diameter. It was unmistakably a gilled fish in its major affiliations, but with certain curious modifications such as rudimentary forelegs and six-toed feet in place of pectoral fins, which prompted the widest speculation. Its extraordinary mouth, thick and scaly hide, and its single, deep-set eye were wonders scarcely less remarkable than its colossal dimensions. And when the naturalist pronounced it an infant organism, which could have not been hatched more than a few days, Public interest mounted to extraordinary heights. The thing's a baby. It's a baby. It's a few it's, days old baby. It's a newborn baby. I don't mean to spoil anything, uh -huh. but right away when I read that, I thought, well, this is a more feminine idea, actually. This is a game that he plays a lot where he shows you the tip of something and you think that's the monster, you know, and then you find out, no, it was just the monster's eyelash. Right. This thing is much, you know, larger than it could have possibly been. Right. But Sony's clearly setting something up. If there's a baby, then there's right. a mother. Then there's a mother. Yeah. yeah. And that mothering instinct that I'm guessing at this point in the story is going to bring this horror to Martin's Beach. Right. Yeah. I haven't seen anything like that, you know, any maternalism. No, not in, at all. In not at all. HPL stuff before. Well, and, I mean, it's his, and obviously that might be because uh, Lovecraft's relationship with his mother was somewhat dubious. Yeah. Which we've spoken about right. before. So. Yeah, she never broke her way out of the insane asylum. <laughs> to, hey, you know, stop bullies from picking on him or anything. No, like. no, no. Uh, but but anyway, so Captain Orn, once they he defeats this monster, he is an entrepreneur. This guy, absolutely, and he takes he gets like a bigger boat, puts the creature on the bit on a big boat, and then charges people admission to come and see it. Yeah, it's basically a sailing museum. I like how he says with typical Yankee shrewdness, you know, he figures out a way to make money on this thing. But that was right out of King Kong in a way. It is, yeah. You know, I, I somebody posted on our forums a video of a woman talking about how King Kong is actually a Lovecraftian tale. Right. Uh huh. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they go to that ancient jungle where there's this pre-human society sure. of, of kind of devolved people that are worshipping this giant monster and yeah. offering up sacrifice. Right, and there's all these giant like walls and structures that mm -hmm. are made by cyclopean people or made for cyclopean things. But again, this story predates King Kong. It does. And everybody's loving this monster though. The, I mean, the, the museum, the floating museum becomes the sensation of Martin's Beach right. for the summer. It's sort of like Bodies the Exhibition of 1922, <laughs> you know. You've got to see this thing. And the naturalists, of course, are very puzzled by it. Yeah, they don't know what to make of it. But then something very strange happened. On the morning of July 20th, the sensation was increased by the loss of the vessel and its strange treasure. 
In the storm of the preceding night, it had broken from its moorings and vanished forever from the sight of man, carrying with it the guard who had slept aboard despite the threatening weather. And, you know, Captain Orrin is like, what the f***? Yeah. <laughs> I own that thing! What? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, storms hit, and there yeah. was a guy that was trying to guard it, and, and that yeah, guy's gone. He went down with it. So Captain Orrin spends a lot of time, uh, he spends a few weeks, and yeah. they say August 7th, all hope was abandoned. Right, so he gets everybody together, and they scour the area and yep. water, and they don't For find weeks. it. By August 7th, as you say, they gave up, and then there's one very factual, non-Lovecraftian sentence. The horror came on August 8th. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, like you say, there's dates in it. It's something. Yeah, um, I, it's got to be Sonya's hand. Yeah. It has to be. Very disappointing. But what did happen on August Day? It was in the twilight, when gray seabirds hovered low near the shore, and a rising moon began to make a glittering path across the waters. The scene is important to remember, for every impression counts. So we've got this super fancy inn that's right on the cliff, mm-hmm. like on the bl- the bluff, and then just down the beach a little bit. There's this colony of like you know people that live. Yeah, you know, around beach there. People. Beach people. I, I, you know, parts of this, well, all of it really has a real procedural feel, a police procedural feel or a confessional feel. Yeah, it does, feel. it does. And Lovecraft does that a lot, you know. I mean, the statement of Randolph Carter is that same sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this had a more real feel to it in the details. There's dates. Uh-huh. She sort of tells you who these people are that live around there. Right. And, you know, nobody in here is saying the ridiculous stuff the cops were saying in Hypnos. Right. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, your no. only friend is beauty and art or whatever you know the the that is insanity the people in this story seem to be coming from real life to an extent yeah it feels it feels a little bit more like it could be an, an episode of law and order a very bizarre law and order so at the at the inn uh there is a ball going on this, yeah. this evening and big gatsby style party going big, on absolutely but um who is at the at this party captain orn yeah of course captain and some scientists party. yeah and his scientist buddies and sometime that night, nobody knows exactly what time, uh-huh. but they say they know the moon was about a foot above the horizon. People start to see this ripple coming in from the horizon toward the shore. Uh-huh. Many did not notice this ripple until reminded by later events. But it seems to have been very marked, differing in height and motion from the normal waves around it. Some called it cunning and calculating. As it died away craftily by the black reefs afar out, there suddenly came belching up out of the glitter-streaked brine a cry of death, a scream of anguish and despair that moved pity, even while it mocked it. Something bad is going yeah, down out yeah. there. And so these lifeguards, yeah. who are doing their job, they jump into action. And they don't know what the thing is that's screaming out there. They think it's a person, obviously. Yeah, and they got to do their duty. Some help. So they grab an air cushion, which is attached to a giant coil of rope. These guys are sturdy fellows in white bathing attire. Yes, and... Uh, <laughs> They <laughs> they grab an air, this air cushion, and, the, and one of them runs along the shore and, and throws it way out to where the cry uh-huh. is heard. I mean, he does a little spin, kind of uh, Olympic throw. He yeah, gets right, it right, way right. out there. And uh, everybody's gathered around waiting to see what they come up with. The two lifeguards grab the rope, and, and they start pulling. But unfortunately, as they're pulling, something starts pulling them. Right, yeah. They, they get pulled in. They get pulled yeah. into the water. And whatever's on the end of that life preserver is pulling so hard is really strong these are some sturdy men yeah they still go in they go right in the water two of them and of course one of them's like hey help and uh, a bunch of hardier men uh (laughs) you know come down to grab the rope first among them uh captain orn captain orn he jumps in yeah he's he's like you know because he's a captain yeah and you're doing as you were doing that you're making a little strong arm flexing the strong arms and it's funny because although much time isn't spent on describing him 
physically. Yeah. In fact, no time is spent describing physically. He comes across as this giant adventuring character. He, I mean, he's a he's a tough guy. Yeah, like and, a, but he's, he's, a, but more than that, he's he's an entrepreneur too. You know, almost like a um, Han Solo. Uh, maybe yeah, like a Han Solo, <laughs> like a safari kind of hunter. Oh like right, that. right. Because along with that. A Yankee spirit and that brawniness and that seaworthiness. He's also probably not that kind to the natural world. Oh right, yeah. You know? Yeah, he takes advantage of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, think, yeah. I mean, he was just money making off of this scientific discovery, profiteering. Right. Well, this creature that he killed, a baby. <laughs> so, uh, any, anyhow, he and he and more than a dozen fellas are pulling on this thing. Right. And they don't think it's a drowning man anymore, obviously. Yeah, because it's way too powerful. Yeah. It's all the spectators are like, what is it? What's going on? What could and it be? They, could they, it be a whale? Could whale. it be a submarine? Yeah, or yeah. demons. Demons. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Captain Orn says, hey, everybody, you know, we got to get a boat and get out there. And get a harpoon. Harpoon this get, thing. Harpoon yeah. this thing, because this is, this is, this is, he's got dollar signs in his eyes. Exactly. <laughs> this is a new monster. And uh, I need folks to go get a boat. And, of course, I got to lead the boat because I'm a captain. Yeah, I'm the captain. Uh, so a bunch of men get ready to go find the boat. Unfortunately, this plan causes some new people to show up and grab the rope so they can hold on to it while the captain leaves. Right. But, uh, well... This is when things get really tough for everybody. And now there developed with appalling suddenness the crucial fact which changed the entire scene from one of wonder to one of horror. In days with fright, the assembled band of toilers and onlookers. Captain Orn, turning to leave his post at the rope, found his hands held in their place with unaccountable strength. And in a moment, he realized that he was unable to let go of the rope. His plight was instantly divined, and as each companion tested his own situation, the same condition was encountered. The fact could not be denied. Every struggler was irresistibly held in some mysterious bondage to the hempen line which was slowly, hideously, and relentlessly pulling them out to sea. Say what? Man, I've never read this story before. No, I haven't read it actually. And and usually when I run through the ones I don't know, you know, I could see things coming. This actually really surprised me. It did. I didn't know that they weren't going to be able to let go of the rope. It's pretty weird. I, I read this today around fiction. around dusk, and uh, we're in Santa Monica. The fog started like rolling in yeah, while I was reading today. it. <laughs> and I was kind of got I got creeped out. And this makes a little bit of sense because of in the very beginning of the story they mentioned that article about hypnosis being right. not just humans. So. Yeah, I didn't know how that was going to come into play. No, but I mean now, so with that little setup, it seems like you're like, oh, okay, yeah. you're kind of. It's so strange, but the fact that they set it up makes it not so strange. So all these people on the rope are frozen, and all well, the onlookers... Well, they're not frozen. Yeah. They're still pulling, they're but still they pulling. can't take their hands off. Right. Speechless horror ensued. A horror in which the spectators were petrified to utter inaction and mental chaos. Their complete demoralization is reflected in the conflicting accounts they give, and the sheepish excuses they offer for their seemingly callous inertia. I was one of them, and no... I mean, part of the horror is that these people are all now getting pulled into the sea, and the onlookers aren't doing anything. anything. They're just standing there staring. He says that even the um, the people struggling at the rope begin almost being paralyzed by he the or circumstance. She. Yeah, uh, he or she. Yeah. Uh, they become kind of silent and fatalistic. There's a great bit of description. There they stood in the pallid moonlight, blindly pulling against a spectral dune and swaying monotonously backward and forward as the water rose first to their knees, then to their hips. The moon went partly under a cloud, and in the half-light the line of swaying men resembled some sinister and gigantic centipede, writhing in the clutch of a terrible, creeping death. Ugh. 
the centipede thing, that like word picture, just really grabbed me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all these people tied to a rope, and then there's kind of the ocean, you know, pulling it, you know, kind of yeah. not just straight out. So there's the people are sort of, you know, w- moving in sort of a wave, like yeah. it's like a centipede. Movement. And and not only are the men being pulled into the water, and it is all men. I mean, a it makes sense that the men would be the ones to go down and try and do this, right? But it's I, man's work. It's <laughs> well, also because. I'm assuming that this is maybe the mother out there. It's almost like this is a punishment for these men who are so callous with the child. Right. And that kind of made me think this is a woman narrator. Yeah. Especially if Sony wrote the story to begin with. Sure. That it's a woman narrator who who didn't come and grab onto the rope but feels guilty because of the inaction. Right. But but a lot of Lovecraft protagonists are like that, too. They don't get involved and then feel bad. Not only are the men being pulled in the water, but the tide is coming in to meet right. them. Right. So the, the people start stepping back to avoid the water. And so they're getting further and further away from the people that are being pulled out to the ocean. And in the story, it says that the sands, so lately peopled by laughing children and whispering lovers, is being overtaken by the tide. And that phrase has got to be so Yeah, that doesn't sound you like Warcraft, yeah. And now everything is silent as they continue in. Yeah. Just really quiet. So, nobody's, nobody's screaming. Nobody uh, is saying, you know, go get help. Everybody's just either standing there or being pulled into the water. Very dimly writhed the serpentine line of nodding heads, with now and then the livid face of a backward-glancing victim gleaming pale in the darkness. Faster and faster gathered the clouds, till at length their angry wrists shot down sharp tongues of febrile flame. Thunders rolled, softly at first, yet soon increasing to a deafening, maddening intensity. Then came a culminating crash, a shock whose reverberation seemed to shake land and sea alike, and on its heels a cloudburst whose drenching violence overpowered the darkened world, as if the heavens themselves had opened to pour forth a vindictive torrent. A storm freaking just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> They're being pulled in the water, the tide's coming in, and now rain is pouring yeah. down on these people. Doom! Doom. Well, not just rain, it's thunder, it's lightning, yeah. it's, you know, a storm, kabam. It's not just a big sea monster, it's not just a big sea creature. It's something that, like, has the power of nature behind yeah. it. Well, all the onlookers, they run up to the hotel veranda, and, and the people inside the hotel, they've been getting the news of what's going on out there, right. so they're freaked out as well. Um, I thought it was semi-amusing that he said some of the people retired in terror to their rooms. <laughs> How does one retire in terror? <laughs> Uh, I guess that's where you're really scared, but you pretend not to be. Yeah. You're like, oh, boy, I'm tired. And all the while you're sweating and shaking. Yeah. That's probably exactly what it yeah. is. So, you know what? That's a pretty good turn of phrase, then. <laughs> now that you've explained it to me. I recall thinking of those heads and the bulging eyes they must contain. Eyes that might well reflect all the fright, panic, and delirium of a malignant universe. All the sorrow, sin, and misery... Blasted hopes and unfulfilled desires, fear, loathing, and anguish of the ages since time's beginning. Eyes alight with all the soul-racking pain of eternally blazing infernos. That's wow, definitely Lovecraft. Yeah, that feels like it. As the protagonist is studying the, the heads going into the water. Mm-hmm. The people, the captain, all of them mm-hmm. being dragged in out, out to sea. She notices another eye, a single eye. Equally alight, yet with a purpose so revolting to my brain that the vision soon passed. The eye! <laughs> the single eye, just like the baby had. Yep. Oh. And uh, and with that, there's a last lightning crash, yeah, the storm yeah. stops, and everything's calm again. Yeah, it's weird. He says there's a there's a great, oh, a mad cataclysm of satanic sound. <laughs> yeah! Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> That's what it was. It's suddenly quiet, as if almost nothing had happened at all. Strangely quiet at sea. Strangely. There was no line of bobbing heads now. 
The waters were calm and deserted, and broken only by the fading ripples of what seemed to be a whirlpool far out in the path of the moonlight, whence the strange cry had first come. But as I looked along that treacherous lane of silvery sheen, with fancy fevered and senses overwrought, there trickled upon my ears from some abysmal sunken waste the faint and sinister echoes of a laugh. And that's the end of the story. That is the end of the story. It seems that uh, Mama got her revenge. Yeah. And thought it was pretty funny. Thought it was a good, good joke, I guess. <laughs> So, like I said, the story was originally published in 1923 in Weird Tales, but was written in 1922, which is before Lovecraft and Sonya got married. And they met at some um, convention? In or... Boston, yeah. yes, yes. Um, they weren't married until 1924. Supposedly, Lovecraft told her, and this is from one of her mentions, that she was the first woman that he'd ever kissed in his adult really? life. Yeah. Supposedly, his mother and, and aunts didn't give uh, too much affection, so... yeah. That well, was... a kiss from them would be a little different anyway. Well, sure, but he said period, kiss period. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that's the, that's the implication. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really it's really tough. But this is another kind of interesting thing that Sonia said about Lovecraft that I, I, you can take this as you will. She said that Lovecraft, she described him as an adequately excellent lover. <laughs> that's so. <laughs> what does it mean? I don't know. He's adequate or he's excellent. Yeah. How can he be both? Hmm. She's adequately excellent. Well, like good enough, like good, but not yeah. great. Or he does the things an excellent lover would do, but he just, doesn't do them well. Yeah, very adequately. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, when you said that though about him never being kissed, it reminded me of that Mr. Show sketch. You know, the one where they're like, "My father touched my butthole." <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a sketch I, where basically I do, I do they're know saying you know, people who have good childhoods don't turn out to be very good artists. So right. the, uh, the it's a program. We'll put the, the sketches on YouTube. We'll put right, it in our yeah, show notes. But it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're basically doing different things to children to make sure that they turn out to be yes. really good artists, like withholding affection or overmothering them. Right, or, uh -huh. And Einstein says that his father touched his butthole. That, that's why he's a, <laughs> that's that's why he's a, a genius. genius yeah. Anyway, that's off topic. That's completely off topic. Tell me well, more well, about not Sonya. Not necessarily off topic, because yeah. Lovecraft, I, you know, he was doing totally awesome, unique, strange, bizarre things, and mm. maybe if he had a happy childhood, he wouldn't have done all this That's cool stuff. That's exactly right, yeah. So. Yeah, the outsider might not have happened if uh, he wasn't an outsider. Yeah. Yeah. If he was the insider, it would be really boring. Yeah. He oh, probably gosh. would be too busy um, having fun and enjoying his life to write anything down. <laughs> exactly. There's a 1961 movie called Gorgo. It's a British uh -huh. film, and it's uh, I'll put the link up to the YouTube trailer for it. But yeah. it's a monster movie about how these guys capture the sea monster. And it's like, I don't know, 10 feet tall, 12 feet tall. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. And then the guy, the, one of the scientists at the trailer, he goes, you don't understand. This is the baby. And then they show like a picture, and he goes, if, if that's the baby, then this thing must be 200 <laughs> feet tall. And it's like... It's crappier looking than Godzilla. Like it's the it's some of the worst special effects ever. But it's Poor basically girl. the story. And yeah. And uh, and uh, there's also a Peter Benchley story called The Beast. I yeah, yeah. Which is sort of the same thing yeah. as this. It, that was made into a film as well. I think made for TV movie. Oh right, it uh, was. It was. In Jaws, they do something similar. It's not a baby, but they catch a smaller shark first, tiger shark, and they right. think that's the one that's responsible. And of course, that's not the real shark. Yeah, it's not a baby, but I mean, giving no, no, you no. the small one to right. show in scope how much larger that the threat really is. Right, right, yeah, definitely, definitely. And well, there I mean, was a. Uh, but this uh, is kind of a revenge story. This is the nature revenge you're story. Right, absolutely. It's. Uh, 
Which might be more appropriate to reference Jaws uh, 4. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, Jaws 4 is a great movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, Mario Van Peebles. You know what's, what's terrible about that is for some reason, uh, when I was a kid, I loved reading novelizations of movies. So uh-huh. I read the book oh, Jaws 4. No. Yeah. And there's oh, stuff shit. in there about voodoo drums and the shark right, and all this. Right, I mean, right, ridiculous. Right. Why did I read the novelization of Jaws 4? You must have had a lot of free time on your hands. I'd be so much smarter if I got that time back. You know? <laughs> what was I doing? It's a cool story. It, does be, it doesn't feel quite Lovecraft. And I think Sonya's influence yeah. in there is, is definitely felt. And it makes me wish that they actually had collaborated on more things. Yeah. I really thought that she brings kind of, she kind of keeps it a little bit more grounded yeah you know like lovecraft really goes you know nuts mm-hmm. with his descriptions and kind of goes down these uh, paths that don't really go anywhere just because he's so and, and you know which is cool but i like this kind of merger there's some interesting stuff about her i was reading some you know i'm brushing up on my sony green stuff mm-hmm. when they lived together in new york lovecraft you know he was super racist he didn't he didn't even like walking on the sidewalks because he didn't want to walk with the rabble yeah. You know, and she was like, "Hey, I'm I'm Jewish. Yeah, I'm, she's from I'm the Ukrainian. Ukraine, yeah, yeah. I'm Ukrainian Jew, and you're cool with me. What's your problem?" And he just you know dismiss her. Yeah, well, yeah, she also she really did seem to have genuine affection for yeah. him. And well, but, from what I mean, she's got an interesting back because she was married before she married. She was, Lovecraft. and she had uh, a baby boy that died very early, and then she yeah. had a daughter that. Uh, so Lovecraft had a stepdaughter, which yeah. nobody ever really talks about. No, and she actually was went on to be a successful journalist under the name Carol Weld. But she had a pretty tense relationship with Sonia. Yeah, they had a falling out, and uh, not exactly sure exactly what happened, but Sonia Green wrote a biography about herself, an autobiography, uh, and doesn't mention the fact that she had a daughter at all in her autobiography. That is cold lunch. That is <laughs> that is some cold lunch. <laughs> that is some cold lunch. After Can you she... imagine? Oh. Yeah, that's... Uh, fortunately, I'm, I could see Lovecraft's att- attraction to her now. What? <laughs> I'm serious. You know, his mom was kind of a oh, was kind of a mean. kind of a bitch. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> see how I said that really quiet? Yeah. She's kind of a bitch. You know? uh, it sounds like Sonya was kind of a bitch. But her uh, her first husband, I think, committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. They're not. As I mean, well. it, it's you know, according to what I read, I mean, they believe that he committed suicide. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not 100. percent But I guess he was kind of a rough guy. Yeah, and in Lovecraft's buddy. Alfred Galpin. Yeah, he wrote a letter to him. A man of brutal character is what he yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so after after Lovecraft and her got divorced in '33, mm-hmm. she moved to California and remarried this guy Nathaniel Davis. Uh, and she didn't know about Lovecraft's uh, death until eight years afterwards. Yeah, because people like they like they and she burned all of his letters. You know, like mm-hmm. they when they got divorced, it was not pleasant. Well, it wasn't a technically it wasn't a divorce either. Yeah, because Lovecraft never signed the papers. Right, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah, so, so when she got remarried later, she was technically being a bigamist. Yeah, but she didn't know that until yeah. many years later, and then she was like late in life when she was an old woman. She's like, they're like, oh yeah, you never uh, that he never signed the papers, and then she felt like terrible that she was a bigamist. Big deal. It's but, like clerical paperwork. Who cares? Yeah, but technically, you know, she was Lovecraft's wife for yeah. his entire life. Yeah, technically. Technically. I wonder why he didn't sign it. He probably loved her. I mean, of course, um, she complained a couple times, too, that, that he never said that he loved her, that he was kind of a distant uh, mm-hmm. guy in that sort of respect. No big surprise. Yeah. And when they were in New York, he had problems finding work. He had problems finding work or finding work that he would do. Yeah. I, right, exactly. You know, yeah. like... He I wasn't mean, coming to the work. It wasn't that the work wasn't coming to him. Right, yeah. 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 We wanted to write. 
You he know? wanted to write, and and that's he wanted to write what he wanted to write. I, he, now he made some money, we know, from yes. doing uh, doing this kind of work, but for other people. E.M. Eddie Jr. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff with E.M. Eddie Jr. Of which we are going to not cover. Right. Uh, one because Lovecraft just kind of tweaked this guy's writings, and two, uh, I can't find it. Yeah, those things are difficult to find. They're really hard to find. But mostly, you know, this is this is a rewrite that I'm keenly interested in because it's a collaboration between him and he and his wife. Absolutely, yeah. And it also, it's, I mean, clearly these are ideas they discussed because this just, the whole concept of it, of the monster out in the ocean. And, yeah. I mean, that's love, that's straight up Lovecraft. It feels, it feels very Lovecraftian. Yeah. And then it, but like, there's just But with a, some nice touches. Yeah. There's yeah. This, a, sort of a refinement to it that I really like. And it, like you said, it's a shame that they didn't write more. I would say, though, I think in, I, I think that everybody can agree this is possibly the worst beach party of all time. Yeah, I'd have to say it's a pretty terrible beach party. <laughs> all those people died. Yeah. And all those people watched. That's... There's a human component, too, when they say they can, people can't all agree on what happened. I wonder how much of that is due to their guilt because they stood there and watched it happen. Oh, yeah. And I wonder how many of the people stood there and watched it happen because they were hypnotized and how many people just, just they didn't want to get near it because the tide was coming in and the rope was going in and right. the people couldn't leave. There's something chilling about everybody silently just watching that unfold. Yeah. Know? Well, I mean, it's there's something kind of realistic about it. You know, in a way, like, yeah. yeah. I like, mean, horrible tragedies happen, and a lot of people don't pitch in or they don't help out. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, when people talk about this guy was a hero, he like just jumped in and ran into the building and got those people. Why that guy's a hero is because most people don't do that. Yeah. Most people just stand around and go, "Oh, that's too bad that that's happening." As a video culture, we continually witness tragedies through the ledge of a cameraman, and the first question everybody asks is, "What the hell was the cameraman doing?" Yeah. yeah. I think that the narrative of the story is, in a way, sort of a whistleblower. Because the attitude is, look, people want to bury this, but I think everybody should know, mm-hmm. you know exactly what happened. Right. I'm going to get this story out there. When you said earlier that if Lovecraft was an insider, it made me think of the movie The Insider with <laughs> Russell Crowe, who was a whistleblower, uh, who felt guilty... Because, right. yeah. Yeah, full circle, man. Full circle, man. Full circle. Well, with that, um, we're going to yeah. be on hiatus for three weeks. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for a wonderful first season of the yeah. HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We'll be out for three weeks. We'll but, be out for three weeks. Uh, when we come back with our season two premiere, it's The Hound. The Hound, folks. Yeah, and now uh, that's great. That's a story I'm quite familiar with already. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, ready, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm ready to dive into that one. Definitely. First. Thank you so much for the donations. They've really helped out. And, uh, we're hopefully going to be doing some changes in the next season. Maybe yeah. update the website a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a, a new offer that we're going to have yep. after uh, this that we're going to keep the lid on. And in the second season, we're going to do an episode in 3D. Oh, right, uh, yes. Which I won't get into too much now, but it's going to be really fun. So you guys should look forward to that. Yes, it's it's going to be something that you're going to have to do with friends. Yeah, it's going to be great. So try and figure that one out. So I want to thank my lovely wife, Heather Klinky, for yes. doing a great job reading. Good job reading, and uh, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Fife. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.